Good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? All right. Y'all are way more awake than that first service. I'm just going to tattle on them. You know what happens this time of year is when it's getting beautiful outside, you start working in the yard. Some of us are silly enough to even pick up a shovel and realize how badly out of shape we are. And then you come in here exhausted. Well, I'm not going to let you sleep through this service. I'm going to watch you, Mickey, if you've been working in the yard. Well, it's so great to have you here. Can y'all believe that last two weeks ago we had Palm Sunday? Last week was Resurrection Sunday, and I still feel like Resurrection Sunday was a month ago. I'm just like, that was just a week ago. It was an awesome couple of weeks just looking through the Passion Week and in, in the scriptures in Luke. We fast forwarded from 17 all the way up to chapter 23, and we saw the trials where where Jesus was put on these terrible mock trials, and we identified with Barabbas. And that was a very powerful reminder that we are the guilty ones who were set free because the innocent God-man was crucified. Very powerful reminder of, of the grace that we have in Christ and his crucifixion. And then last week we saw the resurrection and we, Luke zeroed in on these conversations these two disciples were having on the road to Emmaus and how as they were struggling with faith, how that affected them, and they were sad, and they had lost hope, and, and so the Lord was gracious to just open their eyes through the scriptures to see how all of the scriptures point to Christ, and their hope was restored, and the resurrection, they rejoiced, they had their, really the first true resurrection service as the disciples gathered together and were filled with the joy of the resurrection, and so as it works out, we're going back to chapter 17, we're going to see what chronologically makes a lot of sense. We're going to look at the return of Christ. Uh, and we're going to look at chapter 17, verses 20 through 37. And Jesus is going to give us details about his return. That kind of sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? So I'm excited to tell you that I know the date and the location of his return. So put it on the screen. I'm just kidding. I don't know the date or the, or the location. But he does give us details about the return of the kingdom about his return. Jesus died, he was buried, he rose again, he ascended to heaven and he said, I will come again to receive you and to establish his kingdom. And so today, as we go back in chronological time and we pick up back where we were through the gospel of Luke, if you haven't been with us, I'm not gonna confuse you, but let me just kind of tell you where we've been. We've been working through the gospel of Luke in, in text order, which Luke said, I've I've gathered all this data, I've tested and proved, I looked, talked to firsthand eyewitnesses of all these events, and I'm laying this out for you in chronological order so that you can be certain about the, the truth claims of Christianity. And so that's a great blessing to have that study and a confusion when we jump to chapter 23 because of our own calendars for Palm Sunday and Easter. But as we come to chapter 17, verse 20 through 37, Luke has us considering Jesus' words about his own return. Jesus gives details about his own returns. And what we're going to see, the reason he does that is he knows that if you get this wrong, then you may not be faithful in your life. Because if you don't know how to think about these things. If you think that the kingdom is already supposed to be happening right now and it's supposed to be glorious and no pain and no sickness and no sorrow and no suffering, then you're not going to be faithful because you're going to say everything's gone out of whack because this is not the kingdom I thought Jesus was going to give me. Or if you thought Jesus isn't coming back, you lose hope. 
He's never going to come back. This suffering's never going to end. It's never going to have justice. I'm always going to be battling this sin in my heart. And so it's very important to have confidence in the details, the details he provides about his return. And he's doing this so that we remain faithful in the days that we live. Lord, would you help us? Would you encourage our hearts this morning? Help us to, to remain faithful. Equip us with enough details, the details that you deem important and helpful for us to remain faithful as we eagerly long for your return. And it's in Christ, our risen Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, three details of Jesus' return. And I think it's important that we know these things. It reminds me of a story I've shared with you before, that when my mom was raising me and my two brothers, three crazy boys, who literally fought each other 24-7. I mean, that's just that was our entertainment pleasure. What are we going to do tonight? We're going to beat each other up. I mean, that's just what we did. And so Saturdays, as a kid, I didn't fully understand why it took mom so long at the grocery store. Now I understand. She just was like probably sitting in the bakery drinking coffee and eating cinnamon rolls while the kids just fought it out. But as you've heard from the years of stories, I was perfect. And I'm glad that we've established that. My brothers, not so much. They terrorized me on Saturdays while mom was at the grocery store. And I, as they totally unprovoked by me, innocently, they would terrorize me. And it was terror. It was torture. And, and I just longed for the day that mom would arrive and I would hear her car coming up the driveway. And they would all go to their rooms and leave me alone, act like they had done nothing for the last four hours. And so I looked forward to that return. It put suffering to an end. And so it's important to understand salvation is coming. The Lord is coming back. It changes perspectives to those who are doing evil. It reminds them the Lord is coming back and he will hold you accountable. To those who are suffering, it reminds us the Lord is coming back and he will bring comfort and restoration. And so it's helpful to know the details of the Lord's return. And today we're going to answer three questions that are asked. When is he going to return? How is he going to return? And where is he going to return? And Jesus actually answers all three questions. So if you care, and as you get older, I promise you will care more and more. My mom used to say, come Jesus, come. And I was like, that's weird, mom. That's creepy. Stop it. And now I'm like, Dana and I walked on the house, Lord, come on back, we're ready. It's just something happens, the closer you get, you're like ready for Jesus to come. So first, when will Jesus come back? Well, look at verse 20 of Luke chapter 17. Luke says, being asked by the Pharisees when, when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them. And Jesus said, the kingdom of God is not coming in the ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or over there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. We're going to look at what, what does he mean by that. Then he continues in 22. Luke says, he said to the disciples, Now the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. And you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out 
or follow them. So in these verses, let's stop there. In these verses, the Pharisees ask the question, when? But notice in particular, they ask about the kingdom of God. They say, when will the kingdom of God come? And that phrase, the kingdom of God, the word kingdom can literally be translated the royal reign of God. And that gives us a little insight into their mindset, their thinking. They're thinking a a geopolitical kingdom that has geographic boundaries, has a political leader. Like right now, they're under the Roman rule, the Roman kingdom, and they're desiring to be under the kingdom like King David reigned over Israel's kingdom. And they're looking, when is this going to be reestablished? When will the, the geopolitical kingdom of God be established that we saw you were trying to establish in Old Testament? And so they're looking for that type of kingdom. And Jesus gives them an answer. But when he responds, he transforms their thinking about it a little bit. Notice they said, when will the royal reign of God come And he says, it's already in your midst. And so they're thinking physical, geographical, political kingdom, and they're thinking future. And he turns both of those on its head and says, no, it's not geopolitical, physical, it's a different. When you're asking me about the reign and rule of God, it's already in your midst, he says to these disciples. And so before you fast forward, if you've grown up in church and you kind of know, let's stop and think about what is he saying to those disciples? He's saying, it's already in your midst because I am in your midst. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I'm already here and I have the royal reign and rule of God in me. And so don't think future yet. First, think about the fact that I am in your midst. So Jesus has been announcing all through his ministry, as we've been watching Luke record what he said, what did he say over and over? He said, good news, the kingdom of God is here. Good news, the reign of God is here. In his arrival, he ushers in, he does what theologians like to say he inaugurated the kingdom of God. He brought in, began the reign of God. He himself is king, the one who is like King David, the one who was promised to come. He arrived. He said, it's me. I fulfill those scriptures, those longing for a royal king of God's kingdom. Jesus says, that's me. I'm here. It begins now. I'm in your midst. And we see wherever he went, He was revealing the nature of God's kingdom to those around him. As he went around, what was he doing? He was healing. He showed that when God's reign is taking place fully, there is no sickness. There is no disease. He told children from the dead, get up. He told a lady, get up from the dead. She's just asleep. Get up. And people, whoa, in his kingdom there is no death. There is no disease. There is no pain. There is no sorrow. There's also no sin. There's also no demonic harassment. There's no temptation because as we saw him where he went, he cast demons out of people. And so Jesus, wherever he went, announced the arrival of the kingdom in himself and in his words and his actions and his miracles, he displayed what is it like in that final kingdom. 
It was a beautiful picture of the kingdom of God, but he said, it's not some future event. He said, it's already this royal reign is in your midst, referring to himself, because he brings it. In Luke eleven twenty, we see that Jesus cast out a demon, and the people said, you did that by the power of the devil. And he said, no, but if it is done by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. His miracles were displaying the kingdom of God had already started. It had already come. The power or the reign of God was in their midst because Jesus was in their midst. Jesus isn't done there after making this point that he already manifests the power of God in their midst. He then addresses this future concept that they were asking about. Look at verse 22. He said, The days are coming in the future when you'll desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. That's a key title. The Son of Man. And you, those disciples he was talking to, you disciples, you're not going to see it. Isn't that interesting? He told them. It'd be like us sitting there going, when, when are you coming? And he says, well, you're not going to get to see it. And that's what he tells them. This future kingdom that he changes the language from kingdom of God to the son of man's arrival, he says, you disciples will not see it. And so what is he talking about here? Now he's talking about something different where they asked about when will the reign and rule of God be here? He says, it's already here. And he says, now, if you want to know about the coming of the son of man, and now when they heard that, they were like, oh, that's, that's Daniel 7. That's the prophecy of Daniel 7. Let me read that for you, and this is describing the Son of Man that Jesus is talking about. The prophecy says this, I saw in a night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, and all languages should serve him, and his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not, shall not be destroyed. He says, now, you want to know about that kingdom, that arrival of the Son of Man who will give worldwide reign and rule, a theocracy where God's king is on his throne and all of his glory will be in full unveiled and there will be no injustice, there will be no sickness, there will be no disease, there will be no division, there will be no destruction, it will be a joy filled, glorious, eternal kingdom with God, with Jesus on his throne, reigning and ruling in every heart where there's no sin, there's no temptation, there's no destruction, there's no divided heart. It is glorious. And we say, yes, come Jesus. He says, you want to know about that? He says, well, you're not going to get to see that return during your lifetime. So when? Well, then when will it come? He says in verse 25 to them, he says, well, but first, the Son of Man, Jesus, must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation, by those disciples' generation. So he's given us a timeline. He's told us when he's going to come. So what items does he say? He said, Son of Man will come and establish that kingdom that you're longing for. And he told those disciples, 
who were there when he was walking around. It's not going to be, you're not going to get to see it. You're not going to see when Jesus comes back. He says, it's going to be after this generation betrays me and I go to the cross and I'm crucified. And then he rose from the grave and he says, I'll come again. And now what else did he say has to happen next? So here we are on the other side of the cross. What, what did he say has to happen next? Seriously, not rhetorical. What, can you find anything that he says, then I will do this and then I'll come back? No, nothing. It could happen right now. I don't believe that. I'm just being honest. I don't. It's so hard for me to believe. Anybody else there? Yeah, I just think, well, every generation thought that. They, they thought it. But he told them, no, it's not gonna happen in your lifetime. I've gotta go to the cross first and I gotta resurrect from the grave and then it will happen. We need to understand, and I'm working on my heart. I'm saying, Lord, give me faith to really believe you will come back soon. There is nothing else that has to take place. Jesus, his second coming is, is waiting, waiting on the edge of his seat. When we studied previous texts before, it was the Son of Man was sitting on the edge of his throne waiting to return. The first point I want, the first implication I want to take from this is his return is near and you need to know that. His whole point in telling us these details is to give us what we need to know to remain faithful and to help us remain faithful. He says, you need to understand my return is near. He's coming back soon as we were just singing. It could happen any moment. If we think, oh, well, this thing's got to happen and that thing's got to happen first, his return is near. It's it's any moment. It could happen right now. So work on your heart if you're like me. I've been working on my heart. Lord, help me to believe your return is near because I know that will help me be faithful. Either because as I'm sinning, as I'm struggling to be faithful, I know there's an accountability coming and he can come right now. And there's many parables where he says, what will he find you doing when he returns? Or... Through suffering, through diagnosis, through difficult days, through longings to be done, Lord, just bring me home. His return is near. Hang on. Don't give up. It's important to know the Bible. Jesus wants you to know his return is near. Another reason this is important to understand is that he's not fully done yet. He, if you get this problem what theologians call overrealized eschatology what that means is if you think that the kingdom that final kingdom is supposed to be experienced now then you are going to be as confused as all get out like these disciples who were like he's jesus here's the hope there's two guys on the road to emmaus were like we we thought he was the one 
And Jesus is like, no, 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 you, you didn't understand. Same thing is for us. If you think that this life is not filled with suffering, you've gotten that wrong. That's the, that's the final kingdom. That's when he returns, there will be no suffering. It'll be glorious, it'll be pain-free, it'll be nothing but perfect enjoyment of our king and his will being done on earth as it is now in heaven. But until then, he said, you will have suffering. There will be trials, there will be tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome that. Hang in there. And so we can't get that confused. We live in this current state of already, but not yet. That's what the theologians call the kingdom of God is already, but not yet fully. It's already begun and inaugurated in the arrival of Jesus, but it's not fully experienced until he returns. So keep that in mind or you'll get confused and lose hope. Another implication of this is just like Jesus who walked around and did miracles and his words and his teachings, his life, just like he revealed the kingdom of God for others to say, I want to be a part of that, that's what our job is now. If you read the scriptures, when he, before he ascended to heaven, he said, now I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's going to enable you to do even greater things than me. Now, what does that mean? It means that there's a whole lot of us revealing the kingdom of God to a dark world when there was just one of him. And he says, now, to the extent that you and you and you and you and you individuals submit to the will of God, submit to the word of God, to the extent that you submit to the reign and rule of Jesus in your life, you display the glory of the kingdom of God to people. And then you gather us together as a church, as the people of God, and we are to become a beautiful experience, a taste, not perfect, albeit, you know, partially accurate, but better than the world, come in here and taste and see what it's like to live in the kingdom of God. Just a glimpse of it. And we are to be the city of lights on the hill for our community to say, I want, to, I want a taste of that. There's something powerful and different about that. And, and I want to give you credit. I give God the glory, but I want to give you credit for you're doing this to a large extent. I meet people all the time who are coming in as guests going, I really want to be a part of what's going on here. And maybe you're here today because you have a friend who, who has shown you just a glimpse of the glory of God and what it's like to live under the reign and rule of a glorious king. And I would say, welcome. We want you to know King Jesus. We want you to experience the glory of living under his, submitting to his rule. It is good. He is a gracious, gracious sovereign over our lives. And so you, you, that's your second implication of this. You reveal his kingdom. Are you revealing his kingdom? That's, that's what you are called to do. His return is near, and you reveal his kingdom. So, when is all this going to happen? Well, he's answered that. Right now, to the extent that we, rank, that we submit to his rule, we see his reign taking place. But there's a day, and it could happen any moment, that he's coming back, and he's going to finish the kingdom. He's going to establish his glorious kingdom on earth. So don't lose hope. Focus on revealing his kingdom now. Well, how is this all going to take place? That's the next question they ask. How? Look at verse 23, part B and following. 
He says, do not go out or follow them. And then in verse 31, he says, do not turn back. So before we read this section, he gives us a warning. This book ends this section with, don't go out and follow them. Don't turn back. And so what we see Jesus is doing, he says, the reason I want you to know the details on how all this is going to go down is I don't want you to be deceived. I don't want you to be seduced. I don't want you to be deceived by being ignorant and unaware. So he goes into these details so that we aren't deceived. Verse 24, for as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. He's saying there will be a display for all the world to see when he returns. Not like the first time. He came quietly at a little town in Bethlehem. It was quiet, silent night born and then he kind of grew in his power and strength and notoriety but in this case the first thing we see is how it will go about it will be a massive display of his glory it's like lightning that lights up the sky this week kevin and i were we're driving back from from lunch and we were heading down i-49 heading to the church and one of those storms came crashing in and lightning struck across the sky and it felt like it struck my front left tire and i said whoa glory jesus is coming back I said, sorry, I've been reading this. And he was like, come on, Jesus. We're like having revival right there. Where is he? That's what it's going to be like. It's not going to be a quiet little secret thing. It's going to be for all the world to see. We all felt like that lightning struck right in our house. It's like the sun. Everyone can see it. It feels like it's just right there. When Jesus comes back, it's going to light up the whole sky. It's going to be a display of his glory. He's coming back as a conquering king. He's not coming out as a mild, suffering servant. That was the first time. The second time, he's coming in with power and authority. And that lightning bolt that scared me out of my seat is just a little glimpse of his power. It's going to be a display of his authority and power and glory. You will know it when it happens. So don't be deceived If someone says, hey, come over here. I've got the secret. That's what cult leaders do. Don't fall for that. Remain faithful. You'll know when he displays his power and glory for everyone to see. Not only will it be a display, but next we'll see he describes it. How will it be? It'll be a time of deliverance. Look at verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah. So as a reader, as a faithful reader, you go, Noah, what is that? And you go back to your Old Testament and you read about the days of Noah. It's just going to be just like that. It's going to be like the days of Noah. So it will be in the days of the Son of Man. Oh, they were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and he destroyed them all. Wow. There it is. I could just see by your response. I don't really need to explain that. But the, the, the two sides of the coin here is it's a day of deliverance or destruction. A day of deliverance or destruction. When you go back and read the account of Noah and the flood, the floods were, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. They're like, foolish Noah. Foolish Noah, it's not raining. He keeps talking about this rain that's coming. It hasn't rained in a long time. It's not coming. They thought it was coming. Everyone thought it was coming. It's not coming until it came. And it says that Noah was righteous, and so he was delivered. 
but all those who refuse to put their hope in God's provision, God's means of salvation from the coming judgment, they did not find that to be a day of deliverance. They found it to be a day of destruction. Christ is the ark of salvation. Judgment is coming. We doubt it, but it's coming. The righteous who put their hope in God's provision to a salvation from judgment, Jesus, who get in Jesus, the ark, put their trust in Jesus, will be delivered. All others will be destroyed. So it'll be a day of deliverance or destruction. And he uses Noah to make that point. But then he says, likewise, another example is just as it was in the days of Lot. If you're reading your Old Testament, you go, let me read about that. Go home and do that this week. Look at the days of Lot. What was that? Well, Abraham, God says, hey, you want me to tell you what's about to happen in Sodom? And he's just like, what? And he says, I'm about to destroy Sodom because they are sick, wicked people. And I've run out of patience. And he says, oh, wait, Lot, my nephew is down there. He said, are you going to destroy it if there's 50 righteous people there? He says, no. He said, what about 45? No. What about 40? No. What about 35? What about 30? What about 25? What about 20? He does this. This is And he says, bottom line is, I will not destroy one single righteous person. Go get Lot and his family out of there. And so he goes down. He says, Lot, get out. Judgment's coming. Moment of crisis. Do I believe and respond in faith or not? Lot says, okay, let's go. Let's get out. It says they were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planning, and they were building. That's a description of life as, as we know it. They're just doing life just like normal. But on that day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. The righteous deliverance. The wicked who refused their salvation, destruction. He says, that's the way it's going to be when the Son of Man is revealed. You're going to be doing your job. You're going to be doing what you do. Kids getting married, doing life. And then, like that, it's going to happen. So what's the point? Verse 31, on that day, let the one, this is where it gets personal, let the one on the housetop with his goods in the house do not, do not come down and take them away. Let the one who's in the field, don't turn back. What's he saying? You're on top of the house, and you, it's going down. Where's your longing? Oh, I got to go get my shotgun, that, that shotgun. I got to go get my family photos. I got to go get my stuff. Or I got fields. I'm out in the field. I got work to do. I've got important pressing things. What he's doing is saying, listen, where is your heart? Do not be seduced by the world or the things of this world. Have they captured your heart so that you're longing for them more than watching and longing for the Messiah to come again? What do you mean? Where do you get that? He says, verse 32, remember Lot's wife? What's that? What, what did Lot's wife do? Lot said, come on, we got to go, we got to go. And she's like, well, uh, well, okay. And she's going, and he says, don't look back. That means don't, don't turn away from the salvation because you long for all that you have in Sodom. Don't long for your friends. Don't long for your home. Don't long for anything more than you long for being saved and united with Jesus. Because if you do, 
You will not be delivered, you will be destroyed because you have chosen your Savior. And so Lot's wife looked back and she chose destruction as opposed to deliverance. Who are we choosing? See, the, the world, I've, I've used this word seduced because we can be seduced because of our ignorance. We don't know. And they say, hey, the Messiah is over here. I've got the secret. Come join us. There's this better way. That's a cult. Or we could be seduced by the, the pleasures of this world, the, the, the pleasures of family, all these good things that we enjoy. And we, we turn them into our gods and we worship them and say, this is the way I will endure the suffering. This is the way I'll escape the stress. This is the way I'll deal with the sin in my heart. This is the way I'll deal with the hopelessness that I feel is this world and the things of this world. I hate it. I long for the day that that's over in my heart. Does anyone else still suffer with that? That's not a rhetorical question. I need comfort. Anyone? Thank you. You know me so well, you already know what my idol is. I have this terrible idol of the one thing that I will remove, that will remove my stress, that will remove emptiness, that will remove anything that I don't want is what a lake house <laughs> if i just had a lake house whatever i don't like right now it's it's the lake house and i'm the only one who doesn't have one and all y'all got one <laughs> my family holds me accountable they're like are you serious looking at him again on the on the app i'm like y'all leave me alone i'm having happiness right here quit judging me what's yours isn't that what we do? There's nothing wrong with a lake house until it becomes my God. And then if I don't have one, I'm not okay. That's when it's a problem. And when I'm choosing, it's a hard choice. Jesus or this. I'm ready for that battle to be over, y'all. But what is seducing you to think that if you just had that, you'd be okay? More time with your kids, your kids. Your spouse, approval, that vacation home, a different job, that substance, that person out of that marriage. Let me tell you, none of it satisfies. You got to turn to Jesus. Don't let anything seduce you. And I'm right there with you. That's why we need each other. Jesus is coming back soon. Don't let anything seduce you. To live is Christ, then to die is gain. More Christ. If to live is lake house, relationship, whatever, then to die is absolute failure. So remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. That's what that means. Hold loosely the world and the things of the world. Enjoy them, but enjoy them to the glory of God. Let all blessings be a taste of how good God is so that you, that that, a beautiful day at the lake house is good as, as long as it's going, man, God is good. He is so wonderful. He created all of this and he is the source of my peace. I can't wait till Jesus comes back. 
and picks me up from that lake house <laughs> and gives me an eternal lake house. She, Lot's wife longed for what she was leaving behind in Sodom. She sought to preserve the life she had in Sodom. And as a result of her choice, she forfeited being rescued. So we've seen this going to be a display of his glory. It's going to be associated with deliverance and division. I mean, deliverance and destruction, depending on if you're in Jesus or not. And then finally, we see it's going to be a time of division. Look at verse 34 through 35. He says, I tell you, in that night, there's going to be two people laying in bed. And one's going to be taken, the other one left. There'll be two people working at the grindstone, and one will be taken, the other one's left. That's, that's a sad, sad commentary. It's not going to be based on family heritage. It's going to be based on what you do with Jesus. There's one king, one ruler, one deliverer, one savior. And only those who choose Christ, only those who are hidden in Christ, only those who've had their sins forgiven by Christ, who have had the righteousness of Christ given to them as a gift, only those will be saved. So don't be seduced. So we see when. He's already started it, but he's not yet fully. How. It'll be a display. It'll be deliverance, destruction. It'll be divisive. Time of division. And finally, we're going to see where. Verse 37, and they said to him, but where, Lord? I think that that question is following up on what he just said to them when he said, one will be in their bed, two will be in the bed, one will be taken away, two will be working in the grindstone at the mill, one will be taken away. Taken away where? Where? Where where is that going to happen? And he said to them, kind of this creepy, difficult to understand verse, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. It's a very difficult verse. I think, I think he's intentionally being vague. In other words, we're not going to go where, but there are two ways that this verse can be translated. First of all, as it is here in the ESV, where the corpse is, the vultures will gather it. In that case, it could just be, hey, it's going to be a very public. Everyone's going to know. Just like when there's a corpse on the road, a dead animal, and you see the vultures gathering around in the sky, everyone knows what's going down. And that one has kind of a grim sounding but strangely enough the same words can be translated instead of where the corpse is there the vultures gather could be where the body is the eagles will gather and some would say well that is referring to the body as christ the resurrected body where the body is the eagles and sometimes in the scriptures eagles refers to the church or believers where jesus is the believers will gather I like that one a lot better. That makes me happy. So if it is referring to that, then it's saying that when Jesus returns, he'll gather his church. And then you want to know, well, is that pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib? Is that this, that, the other? Let me like Jesus. He's coming back. And I, I'm not going to tell you all that. I know the answers. I'm just not going to tell you. <laughs> not really. It's very challenging. The point is, he's physically going to come back. It's very soon. There's nothing left to take place, whether it's rapture or not. When he comes, it's happening, and we just need to know it can happen right now. His return is near. Focus on faithfully submitting to his current reign and rule in your life. Reveal his glory. 
those around you, don't be seduced by this world or the things of this world. Father, would you help us to be faithful? We thank you for these words. As we continue in a spirit of prayer, I want to ask you, if you're here today and it's a little bit scary for you to think that Jesus could come back right now, I want to encourage you. You don't have to be afraid of that moment. You can be longing for his return. If you will right now just say, Jesus, I'm trusting in you alone for my salvation. That you are the king. I want you to rule my life. Forgive me of my sins. That's why you died on the cross. Grant me forgiveness. Give me credit for your righteousness so that when you return, you deliver me. And it's a day of deliverance and rejoicing and celebrating and not a day of destruction. Just, just entrust your life to him now and you can look forward to that deliverance. And all of us, we pray, Lord, that, that we will renew our commitment to you, to submit to you, to live faithfully. Because if you return today, we want to be found faithful. We don't want to be found caught in sin. What an embarrassment that would be. And also, we want to reveal your kingdom, your glory, your goodness, your faithfulness to those around us. And so we pray, Lord, that you would empower us to faithfulness. Help us obey your, your word. Lord, make us a city of lights on the hill. Make, make us a beautiful display of your glory so that we can show others how good your kingdom is.